But Bobby, do you mind leading us in prayer this morning to get us started? And we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to join us as we Absolutely. enter into His Scripture. All right, let's pray. Father God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Father of Jesus, we praise your name this morning. Thank you for creating us and putting us in a place that is indwelled with your love. Thank you for surrounding us by beauty and filling the world with your hesed. We thank you for not giving up on us when we have vandalized your wonderful world and our relationship with you and one another. But you sent Jesus to keep the promises, to show us what you look like, to bring us back into a wonderful relationship with you, an intimate personal relationship that you created us for. Be with us today, Father. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with your spirit. And may your spirit be upon Phil and, and may he uh, instruct us. We just thank you so much for the hope of the resurrection. And we look forward when our faith will be sight. And we shall walk with Jesus. Father, we are looking forward to that. And it's through Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and our big brother's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give you a couple of background biases that, that we're going to approach the study with. Uh, my focus for most of my life has been the Gospels. Uh, it's, it's been my love, it's been my passion. They have rearranged my theology. Uh, I try to, each decade, take a slow read in, in Greek through each one of them. Every time I do it, it something grabs me because I'm 63, I don't remember all my Greek as well as I did in graduate school. But walking through that and living in it and saying it out loud, you hear things, and uh, we were talking a little earlier. Paul and I were about some some principles of rhetorical uh, criticism that the that the New Testament documents are are really oral documents, and they are put together around principles that the hearer could understand what was important. And what sucked me back into the Old Testament were the Gospels. Because, uh, uh, well, let's get started and we'll get there. Uh, my background is I've been a preacher for most of my life. I did teach for seven years. I taught practical ministry in the, the School of Theology in Austin, University Avenue. Uh, and then I felt called to launch an internet ministry, and that has become the giant that has uh, <clears throat> swallowed my life, but it has been an incredible experience. And so, uh, we have a large footprint, and we're constantly trying to find ways to help because out of a half a million distinct users a month, about 300,000 a day, two-thirds of them are not churched, or at least they're not church in the box. In other words, they're house church or missional church or that kind of thing. And so we're constantly looking for ways to help them establish a community uh, or, or a family an extended family of faith. And so that's my background. I have a wife that, that has loved me for over 40 years and put up with my comings and goings. And sometimes my goings are more dramatic than others. They, Dallas-Fort Worth got pummeled this morning. 
uh, all sorts of sirens going off and heavy rain, but thankfully no tornadoes. So uh, she's gone from praying for the survival to praying for our class today. So anyway, that tells you a little about me. I have a couple of kids. Uh, one is a single daughter that's a professor of physical therapy at uh, a religious university in Central Texas, University of Mary Harden Baylor, and a son that lives in Kentucky. And he has two sons, and their call to fulfill the Great Commission took them into foster care. And we have two sons that have been adopted through foster care, and we're about to have our seventh foster grandchild go back to parents. Uh, and I can talk to you about all, all that later if you want to get into that. Let me just share with you the background of this study. Uh, we often assume Old Testament people have a very specific and monolithic viewpoint to several groups of people. Outsiders, which would be Gentiles, the less than, the marginalized, the poor, the unclean, the common, commoners, the Amharits, uh, and the women. And this is based on a pharisaical prayer that Paul speaks against in Galatians 3.26 and through 29, and Luke speaks against narratively in Luke 10. Their prayer was, you know, God, I'm thankful that I was not born a woman or a Gentile or a Samaritan or uh, a slave. And uh, in uh, both in example and word, uh, the New Testament speaks against that point of view. But we have this view that the Old Testament is what gave the Pharisees that point of view, when in fact... The Old Testament is full of what we'll call op-ed personalities that say, no, we've kind of lost sight of the heart of our God. And uh, if you want to know what uh, God looks like when it comes to a group of people, they're going to love the widow, they're going to love the fatherless, and they're going to love the foreigner among us. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if there's not justice for them, then there's something wrong with our hearts because we're not reflecting the heart of God. So uh, this theme is a theme that runs throughout all this material, and I like to talk about it. Is these are these are the Holy Spirit using stories and characters and witnesses, some pro prophetic witnesses that give us melodies of grace that we see come alive in Jesus so that we understand Jesus is not a discontinuity to the heart of God revealed in the Old Testament. He is the extended trajectory of what the heart of God looks like embodied in human flesh. And, uh, and so that's the passion behind all of what you're going to see here. Now, there's two ways to arrange uh, the material I've talked to you about uh, looking at the three ways, to, the, thir the, the three-part series, but today I'll just mention to you, here are uh, the surprising choices of God. And that's how we're going to look at it, surprising choices, and then we'll look at love on the margins uh, tomorrow. But there's another way to, to break it into several pieces, and one is God's surprising cho choices, love at the margins, and out of the shadows. And that's to cluster four of the women together because uh, sometimes we have done exegesis by taking a passage and making it a blanket statement 
Uh, and we've d done that with two passages on women and made it a blanket statement when in fact it's more a pillowcase than a blanket. It covers a specific situation at a specific time and the way we know that is we first go look at what women did. And so some of these stories will reveal to us this is one of my heroes. Do you find many people that know this story when you talk about Hulda? No, that's why I call her Hulda Who. Yeah. <laughs> Hulda is an incredible, incredible story, and Lord willing, we'll get to some of Hulda's story today. Love, uh, love for the Marginals or Love at the Margins deals with this group of people, and I don't know why we've never magnified the Rahab to Boaz to Ruth story. The fact that that the ultimate king of the Jews has got at least as much Gentile blood as he's got Jewish blood. And the fact that uh, Rahab is a hero, and I think if you listen to the story, she practices faithful love for her family and prostitutes herself to care for them. But that may be reading more in the text than is in the text, but I don't think so. So, okay. What I want us to understand is Jesus stood conventional wisdom, especially the conventional wisdom of his day on its ear. <clears throat> Just think about how he came to be with us. A king in a manger. A king welcomed by shepherds and not by the elite. A king of the Jews that was celebrated by Iranians or Persians. If you talk to Christians that come from Persian heritage, they will tell you, uh, these kings are who we are. Uh, Isaiah talked about our great hero, Cyrus, is Israel's first Messiah. Uh, and so we were waiting for Jesus to come. Uh, uh, those Jesus served helped and healed, the uh, least the last and the lost, uh, were his passion, which is exactly the opposite of what we tend to do naturally living out of our flesh. Uh, he interacted, valued, and emphasized the importance of women. His emphasis uh, on the marginals, those that he called greatest and those he drove crazy with jealousy and violation of ritual laws and fear, uh, the greatest were like the publican praying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then how he chose to save us, to become the curse of the law for us to deliver us grace and redeem us and reconcile us. But my point is we shouldn't be surprised at that. If we've read the Old Testament, none of this should be a real surprise. If we've listened to it, if, we, if we've agonized with Amos and Hosea, if we've listened to the whole constellation of Isaiah with his incredible view of who God is, the agony of God having to punish his people but the hope and the promise of a Messiah that would save his people, but he would do so by being a suffering servant. So God's been doing this stuff all the time in the Old Testament. Now, I'm a daddy. This is my daughter that's now a professor. Uh, our little dyslexic girl that's about to get her second uh, terminal degree, and we're proud of her. But when she was born, uh, Ken Young was beginning his first music ministry at Westover Hills in Austin. In fact, he came as a family minister. And so we were going to do the book of Revelation. 
and I didn't want to do tiny pieces of Revelation. So I sat down with Ken, and we pulled all the songs we could find in our hymnody, and then he wrote seven other songs from Revelation, and we did Revelation in two weeks. And the only reason we did it in two weeks is we had three services, and we couldn't go three hours at each service. You know, that just wasn't going to fly. But uh, rather than me do a lot of preaching, I would just make a comment or two or read because the book of Revelation uh, pulls a lot of language and form from the Old Testament that you could call liturgical. It's worship language. And so we did that. So one of the songs was, Great and marvelous are your, are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. And it really was more a chant than a song. And it didn't have very wide range. So as a daddy with a little girl uh, who was gone a lot, I tried to do everything I could to tuck her in every night. And so I would rock her to sleep and I would do that chant and put her in the bed. So uh, when she's about eight, we go to uh, a family retreat and uh, Ken would come in every year did, did it for 22 years and we'd have a family retreat we'd sing a lot and so we start singing this song and she starts singing this song and then she looks at me and she says how do I know this song I've never heard us sing this song in church and so I, I said I'll tell you all about it later and, and I explained to her well what I want us to realize is when we meet Jesus and we go, there's something here that is powerful, but it, it taps something deep inside me that goes back a lot long. Where does this come from? And there were people in the Old Testament that sang this same tune. And Jesus came along, and he was the tuning fork that made all those songs come into harmony. And so what this is is, we're just going to look at these Old Testament uh, characters and stories as melodies of grace tuned to the words and example of Jesus. And, you know, there's, there's two elements of Jesus teaching what he says and how he does life. And both of those are incredibly important. And, and uh, when we look at both pieces, we see so much of what's uh, talked about in these Old Testament passages, and now all of a sudden this doesn't want to advance. Okay, so what in the world is op-ed? Somebody asked me that question. What in the world is op-ed? And uh, uh, I grew up on the newspaper. I, I, I still read a newspaper. Uh, I don't get my news as much from the newspaper as I get it from other sources. In fact, I don't know if you're like me. I I don't trust CNN, I think it's biased, and I don't trust Fox, I think it's biased, and so a lot of times I get my news from the BBC, uh, especially on international stuff. And, but what you learn if you've listened to newspapers for a long time is quality newspapers will always have two or three op-ed articles. And op-ed just means it's opposite the editorial page, but it's come to mean in our time, folks that have a different take on what the predominant take of the newspaper is. And unfortunately, 
God's people have always been prone to slide into a mechanical relationship with him. In, in fact, it would be called idolatry. In fact, the, I believe most of American religion is idolatry. Idolatry can have a physical form, but the underlying premise of idolatry is if I do this, then God has to do that for me. It's this magical formulation. And so, uh, and, and you just look across cultures. I just looked at as uh, short a time ago as 600 years, the, the Incas slaughtered children from all of their provinces and buried them with slaughtered llamas because of a, a, an extended drought and they were trying to appease the gods. Uh, it was one of those things that just took archaeologists by surprise. That something this recent uh, could have happened and be this uh, brutal. Uh, when we look at these people in the, uh, the Old Testament that think otherwise to the perversion of the Israelite faith, the call of Yahweh to be his people. Uh, uh, there are three terms in, in I, I, was a, I was a Greek wonk when I first started preaching. And so I started using what's called cornbread English to kind of destigmatize all this highfalutin sounding stuff. And I just say, in cornbread English, it's this. And somewhere along the way, for me, the heart of what we're called to be as God's people is a reflection of his faithful love, because that's who God is, and it's reflected in righteous character and gracious compassion. Now, we can talk about some words that this fits, but when you look at some of the statements about God, those are the things you see, and when you listen to the prophets, I think those are dominant themes. God is faithful whether we are or not. His love is what defines him, this faithful love. But that faithful love calls us to what we call social justice today, or I'd prefer to call Jesus justice. And that Jesus justice is balanced by two principles, righteous character. We're not going to be corrupted in the courts. We're not going to let rich people have one standard and poor people have another. Except we do, right? Right? Who can hire the best attorney wins, provide the most evidence, uh, something condemned, and then gracious compassion. And, and our struggle is how do we get all of this in one place? It's hard for us to be faithful, especially rooted in love, because we want to get selfish, or we want stuff our own way, or we don't want people infringing on our territory. And we forget we're stewards and not owners. And then sometimes we can move in the direction of trying to be righteous and circumspect and have this righteous character of God. But often if we push all the way here, we forget this part, to be gracious and compassionate for those that are not. And so then we make some sin bigger than other sin in in. in Really bad sin is kind of like minor surgery, right? It's what happens to other people. Because if it's surgery, it's major if I'm having it. So, okay. 
So that's the, that's the premise of this, and I wanted to give you kind of a background of where we're coming from. So where does this approach, the whole Bible is our scripture, emanate? Well, how do the first three Gospels begin? Well, let's start with Mark. Mark gives this one-verse introduction the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what's the first thing he says? The scriptures talked about someone coming ahead of the Messiah. It talks about John. So Mark, even though he's short and quick, he anchors us in this connection to the Old Testament. Luke is an un- un- unapologetic, even though he has this very technically perfect four verse introduction that sounds like a, a, a great uh, uh, story right out of the classical Greek literature. His Greek is very, very classical introduction to a saga narrative. Uh, but when he gets to verse 5, he switches immediately to Greek that feels like the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. That's what that little symbol is. Uh, and and uh, uh, that's part of what makes learning to read Luke glorious and hard because after you get past chapter 2 then he begins to slowly meld into more uh, high standard Koine Greek uh, which is hard enough to read but uh, once you've read it enough you can really notice the shift and what he's saying is the story I'm telling you is connected to what goes before in fact he uses this word to describe Jesus' ministry, what he accomplished or what he fulfilled. So what Jesus is doing is a direct connection to the Old Testament. And then in the birth stories, you, you hear this beautiful language, this quotation of scripture, and it reminds you of, of uh, narratives from the Old Testament. So it's very connected. Then Matthew, which is where I've spent the last 20 years, because I heard a professor say for... 19th centuries, Matthew was the gospel of the church, and then in the 20th century, we ditched him. And so that was enough to drive me crazy. Uh, and so I want to know why, and so I spent a lot of time. Well, in Matthew, you know that Matthew repeatedly says this was to fulfill. Mm-hmm. And Matthew is the most Jewishly flavored gospel, but is, I, I would argue, the most adamantly missional gospel because he keeps reminding us that God's heart was to save his Hebrew people but his Hebrew people were supposed to save the world and so he has these stories so in the genealogy you have this interesting thing and Bobby had a bunch of us read a book and I had never found anybody that supported this this approach that I took to the genealogy but uh If you look at the genealogy, there are three generations of 14. But every single Jewish person that had been to the synagogue knows that there weren't 14 generations in any one of those three. So you go, okay, what's going on here? Because it's not a contradiction. Well, you have some Jewish numerical concepts. And so basically to put it in cornbread English, he's saying three times twice the perfect genealogy, two times seven times three, this is the ultra-heavenly genealogy of Jesus. So what, he's, what is he saying? 
You want to know who Jesus is? Well, you better listen carefully to this genealogy. And then you start poking around the genealogy, and it ends with Mary. But to prepare us for Mary, there are four women, mm -hmm. all with very questionable are interesting sexual histories. And I think, you know, it, it depends on, on uh, whether Bathsheba was Jewish or like her husband, Hittite. I lean toward the latter. I think she was probably Hittite, unless somebody can show me differently. That means they were all Gentiles. There were Midianites or Canaanites. And this is Jesus' genealogy. And, of course, we know Rahab, and then uh, it's her boy or grandson. I can't remember that marries uh, Ruth. I think it's her son, isn't it? In the genealogy, her son marries Ruth. So you have a Canaanite that was labeled a harlot or a prostitute that is including the people of God that gives birth to the man that is the, the male hero of the story of Ruth, that is a story of God's faith. It's, it's an example of God's faithful love. Ruth is an example of what God practices with his people. Ruth is to Naomi what God is to his people. So, it's, it's, so you have all these birth stories. So all of a sudden you go, okay, so this is all connected together, that the story of Jesus is not from left field. It's from the heart of God. And God's been trying to get our attention about this all along. So the verse that, that I'll, I'll read to you and you can put down is this verse right here. And it's, it's the most neglected uh, parable saying, I think, in Matthew 13. But Jesus gets to the end of the parable and he says, or this collection of parables, which uh, Paul and I were talking about. If you look at the, the chiastic structure of Matthew, there are five teachings sections, and the outer ones are really long and are reflective of each other. The inner ones are about the same in length, and the center one are the parables of the kingdom. So in good old rhetorical tradition, he's saying, this is the most important of the teachings. Now, we normally go to the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't discount the crucial importance of the Sermon on the Mount, but for Matthew's community, something about the power of the kingdom, the parable of the kingdom, and he finishes it with this. Then Jesus added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. And that's what I believe we're looking at today, is some of God's gems. Uh, at one point in the A-Track days, I had every Simon and Garfunkel uh, A-Track ever released. <laughs> and then in about two years, they were totally irrelevant and were falling apart. But uh, uh, Garfunkel had a couple of albums afterwards, and one of them, he describes this woman that shined like a gem in a five-and-dime store. <clears throat> and I think that God and in his broken heart with his people would say, there was a lot of times my people lived like they were junk, just like the people around them. But if you listen and look closely, 
there are some gems in there. And they reflect this faithful love that I have for my people. And they are, they are people of righteous character. And they are people uh, of compassion. And so we're going to look at these. I'm not going to pretend like we're going to cover these in depth. I just want you to be familiar with them. And again, you'll have a link that you can go and, uh, and you can see the whole presentation uh, on your web browser. And uh, this is a project I've done for Hope Network, so it's free for any church that will use it. All we just ask is you keep the attribution with it so nobody steals it and sells it. We want this to be freely available for anybody that uses it. Okay, so we're familiar with this passage as Christians. If anyone is in Christ, it's a whole new world. You know, the old world is gone, the new world has come, and we love that. But God did that repeatedly through the Old Testament in different ways. And one of the ones that I love is the story of Seth. And Seth is the beginning of a theme that runs throughout Scripture. In fact, he's the beginning of two themes. Dominant culture, political correctness, is that the important child of a father and a mother, especially if they're important, is the first child. And so primogeniture ruled the ancient world. And God ignored it. You think about it, God ignored it. Or maybe he didn't ignore it, but he trumped it with a different truth. So, Cain kills Abel. The world is ushered into a time of violence. And the first violence is religious violence. So what's going to happen? So, we find out that God grants Adam and Eve a child. And then God says, Adam was made in the image of God, and Seth was made in the image of Adam. Now I'm going to reveal my bias here. I am anti-Calvinist to the core. And one of the ways you can tell a Calvinist is they would say, that meant that Seth carried the sin and the stain of Adam and passed it on for every generation. But in the context of Genesis, I would say, that is absolutely incorrect. I believe God is saying, Seth is a bearer of my image. And we find that confirmed when God gives the Noachian covenant, you know, after the flood, and he says, if anyone takes the life of a human being who is made in the image of God, then his life must be taken from him. So we know clearly that, that the, the, the Genesis narrative is saying, even though the world has gone to hell in a handbasket, because that's what chapters 1 through 11 are about, there's still something precious about a redeeming being. And I don't think we can give that up. If we give that up, then I think we've lost some of the heart of God. I don't think somebody's a worthless worm because they live on skid row and they're strung out and they, there's something of the image of God and we're called mm -hmm. to do something about it. Uh, Patty Patterson, Dr. Patterson, has spent her life helping babies that have come through from the most horrible of backgrounds. Well, why do we do that? Well, it's not just because we have soft hearts. 
because we believe people are made in the image of God. And Seth is the beginning of this story. Throughout this great story that God tells, uh, when things get to be in a mess, the new hope of his people is often found in the birth of a child. And what's the ultimate example of that? Yeah, it's Jesus. So this, this long waiting, at least from our perspective, this long waiting for this messianic hope, this hope of a new life for Israel, in Jesus, first has its refrain sung with Seth. And as Eve rejoiced in the gift of God. Now, I still remember a talk that Harold Hazlip gave when I was, I, I hadn't even graduated from ACU. And he did it at breakfast. And I, I didn't even know why I was getting up and going to breakfast other than I was going to get some extra credit. <clears throat> but he did a little talk on Seth and how Seth was this theme that God implanted in Scripture and would hear it again and again and again that he could bring new life through the birth of a child and that Jesus became the fullest version of that, but he did it all throughout the scriptures. I still remember that to, the, to this day. That was over 43 years ago. But when you read the Bible from that perspective, what happens? When you read scripture from that perspective, isn't that what happens again and again and again? And it doesn't have to be the first child. In fact, a lot of times it's not. So God defeats primogeniture. So hope for a new future can come through the birth of a child. God's promise and the Jesus line come through Seth. And the new humanity comes through Jesus. Uh, part of our being baptized into Christ is this, this being united with him, being made one with him to become a people that come from his line uh, adopted by grace. Each person is precious to God and created by God. Uh, something that a lot of us will quote Psalm 139, 13 through 16 about God having a purpose and a plan for us. And the true heir is not determined by birth order but by character. Does that sound like something you maybe have heard especially with the 50th anniversary uh, Martin Luther King, that my children will be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. God's true heir has never been determined by the color of skin, but by character. And what's interesting, and we forget this little theme in Genesis 4, uh, at that time, people began to call on the name Yahweh. Uh, there is suddenly, with the birth of Seth, a move toward the heart of God, even though dominant culture is going to move away from God. So I love that story. So that's just an example. So you see kind of how this is going to work. You, I, I like to, for folks to think about uh, New Testament characters or a message in the New Testament, but how it's embedded back in the Old Testament. Uh, the story of the prodigal son, I, I don't know why I never thought of this. But I love this story because this is one of those few parables that uh, Jesus uses a, a double-bladed razor. Now, 
you younger guys don't have any clue what a double razor is. But in the old days, before they started making these plastic things, you had a, you, you either got one at the barber shop or you got one that Gillette made that had a razor blade on either end. And, and this is one of those Gillette cut, cuts both ways stories, right? The, the uh, younger boy that rebelled and left home and the older boy that rebelled and stayed at home. But neither one of them had the heart of the father. And this is a great story, but we've heard this story before. Who tells this story in the Old Testament? The weasel. Isn't that the story of Jacob? This is the story of Jacob. Even down to the two brothers trying to figure out how they're going to get along after everything. And, and, and it takes a lot to get Jacob to become Israel. You with me? I mean, it takes a lot. But God works hard. But from the very beginning, God said, it's not going to be the older son. It's going to be the younger son. And uh, one of the things that I love, because one of the sub-themes in Matthew that he builds his gospel around is this theme of Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, well, that really is a major theme in the story of Jacob. God with us. God meets us to confirm his presence as we journey forward. God meets us as we wait on his guidance and ask for permission. God meets us as we wrestle with him over our identity and our future. God meets us even in our old age as we seek direction from him. I can't think of more important messages from a, for a fractured movement that claims to be of Christ than maybe these messages that we see embedded in this story. But nobody, to me, is a better example of when you finally get God, the world is totally different. And surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. That's one of those beautiful, beautiful stories that we get from Jacob. So that's the second example. This one, and there's, there's some other examples, but who do you see in the Old Testament that prefigures the ministry of Jesus? It's the longest narrative. It's the Joseph narrative, isn't it? You think about the Joseph story. And uh, this is one of Paul's messages to the community. It's, this is, uh, Bobby, I'm with you. I, I have gone around, in fact, a couple of Sundays ago, I preached that, that uh, Texan English was the most pure form of English and everything else has fallen away from it because we have you plural. And so if I say you and I say y'all, you know the difference. And so we miss the y'alls. This is, this is a y'all statement. God is at work in y'all, both the willing to work for his good pleasure. He's in, at work in your community. Uh, well, we see God at work in Jesus. But isn't that what we see in the story of Joseph? This incredible little statement that he gives to his brothers when he could have practiced vengeance. But what does he do? He's a person of faithful love who is righteous in character and practices compassionate care for his family. 
This is a reflection of God's self-definition seen in the life of a person. Now, we recognize that he's a brat. Can we say that? He was a brat as a kid. You know, he had an overly doting parent. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of it, uh, you have this multiple marriages that just creates all sorts of, of, of rivalry and anger and hostility. And he's just a little, I'm trying to think of a word that I can use in this setting. He's just a little jerk. Mm-hmm. And the brothers have all this rivalry. And he walks into the room and he says, well, you're all a bunch of hay. You're going to bound down to me. And that's just like he poured gasoline on the hay, lit the match and threw it on them and let it blow up. And, but that confidence in God as he matures becomes confidence in God that sustained him through temptation. And his confidence in God that was enduring when he was abandoned by other people. And his confidence in God that reveals is compassion and power. So we take away this, you know, Luke gives us a different definition of Jesus as he enters teenagerhood. He's not the little jerk that said everybody was going to bow down to him. He went home, was obedient, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and people. But after that, Joseph then prefigures these moves of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Now God helped Jesus be confident. You ever notice that? You're my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. What's the first question out of Satan's mouth? If you're the son of God. Sorry, my dad's already told me who I am. I'm not going to go that way. Confidence in God is sustaining in temptation. Confidence of God is enduring in abandonment. Uh, My other freak out thing is uh, we have a lot of people that say, when Jesus went to the cross, God turned his back on him, would have nothing to do because he was too holy, and God abandoned his son. And that's an evangelical teaching, but you cannot find that in Scripture. In fact, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is the beginning of a song that is the song of Jesus' crucifixion, but the last third of that song says, but you didn't abandon me. And future generations will proclaim my faithfulness and others will come to the Lord because of what you have done through me. And so if you, if you know the Jewish practice of saying the first word of a psalm or even a section of teaching and then the other rabbinic students would reply with the rest of it, Jesus is saying, God, I feel totally abandoned. I've been there, haven't you? I feel totally abandoned. And, you know, I got dogs around me and they want to gnaw my bones and my, I feel like wax inside and I feel like nobody's there. And then, but we go, I trust in you because you're the God of faithful love. So Joseph's faith is enduring and abandonment is confident and God is, the confidence in God allows us to be compassionate and power. Something that's not the way the world operates, is it? I've just gotten back from China, and uh, uh, they're closing down. They're closing down on Christians. They're closing down. I only allow one Bible now. Uh, I've got some spiritual daughters. Uh, one of them had her church in the southern part of China busted up, and the leaders put in prison. 
we didn't hear about that here, but they're making them now not be in groups of more than 10. Well, what do you do in that time? Well, we're going to be faithful. We're going to trust. Because even if we're in power, our goal is not to manipulate or abuse or mistreat people. For our advantage, we're called to be like God, to practice faithful love with righteous character and gracious compassion. So Joseph is a great example of that. All right, one of my favorite themes, uh, Luke is the one that, that emphasizes it most strongly, are the women. And when all the men weenie out, okay, yeah, you know what that comes from. That's a Hebrew term, weenie out. Haven't you read that in Hebrew? Weenie out. Uh, and and uh, they all run, beginning with the Passion all the way through to Pentecost. The only group that is there in every scene are the women. And in fact, Luke tells us this little story in Luke 24, 11, that when the women come back and say, he's risen, we've seen him, they basically say, well, that's just a bunch of women talk. I, I, I mean, you can literally translate what Luke writes there in 24, 11. So I love the women, but uh, the women are the ones that stand firm when things are, when the stink is in the fire. And life is on the line they're faithful. And John emphasizes it, and I, you know, I appreciate Max uh, Locato for reminding us of this, that Mary's the one, even while Jesus is dead, who calls him my Lord. My Lord. Which is, I don't think, an accidental statement in John. Uh, uh, because Jesus' glory is seen in his willingness to let tr love triumph over hate. And, and so he goes, well, one of the great heroes of the Old Testament is Deborah, who is everything. Uh, uh, my wife, for a time, uh, was part of a group called the Coffee Group, and they went all over the country speaking. And, you know, they used kind of the view format where there was a group of women, and one of them would give up, get up and give a talk, and then they'd talk together, and they'd take stuff from, from the crowd. And... Uh, they finally got the request that most women speakers always get. And, uh, and the request was to, to do Proverbs 31. And, uh, and so Donna talked to me about it. She said, I don't want to do this. No women will say this, but they hate this passage. <laughs> because nobody's this good. Nobody's this good. And then she goes, but did I understand this right? This is a mother giving a job description for her daughter-in-law? And I said, that's exactly right. And she said, now I understand. <laughs> <laughs> and so she went in and she talked about, she talked about, okay, rather than getting beat up by this passage, let's find two things that we're good at and two things we need to grow in. But let's also understand, this was a job description written by a mother-in-law for a son that she wasn't good enough to marry. Cause, and I know that because I got a fantastic daughter-in-law, but I didn't think there was anybody good enough for my son. So, interesting perspective. The problem is, is Deborah's all those things. Isn't that right? She's a wife, she's a judge. She has to be a gen general because the guy weenied out 
See, I told you it was a Hebrew term. But he weaned out and wouldn't go into battle unless you went with him. And I get that a little bit. Because have you ever had somebody that's one of these super spirituals that said, well, the Lord has revealed to me, Sue, you need to do this and this and this and this. Well, she came and gave that prophetic statement, and he said, well, I'll do it if you'll go with me. But she goes, yeah, I'll go with you, but the glory's going to go to a woman. You remember how that story ends? Yeah. And, and one of my favorite things, uh, the kids at Westover, I think y'all, you and Scott were even there at the time, and they gave me pictures of this story. And, there, and these are little kids. And there's a woman, and there's a guy asleep on the ground, and she's got a, a hammer, and she's got a beef steak on his head, and she's <laughs> beating him with a steak. But anyway, uh, the story of Deborah is incredibly important because it comes to us in an age where women didn't do anything, and she did everything. And if we listen, all throughout the Old Testament story, God raises up women throughout his story to be strong leaders, especially when men are unwilling and corrupt. Uh, Now, not always when they're unwilling or corrupt. We'll see that in a second. But... It's important we not overlook our call to lead because of our parent status or what the cultural difference is. If God has gifted us, we've got to find a way to use our gifts. Now, the flip side of that is what we must be open to people of character that God calls to lead. You know, if, if the best we got to work with is a Samson, then we need to look for a Deborah. Isn't that right? Because mm-hmm. the judges, the judges is like the swirly in the toilet. And it's bad at the start, but the closer you get to into the judges, it turns faster and faster and nastier and nastier. And there's, I mean, the stories at the end of the judges are just awful. But thankfully, there's a Deborah. And uh, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time, and she held court under the palm of Deborah. She was so stinking good, they named a tree after her. (laughs) All right? So what I want us to see is these women of strong faith that are sticking with Jesus through all of this, and we could add to this the story of Mary uh, in Luke 10 where Jesus claims her as one of his rabbinic students and she will be one of his rabbis and what I've given her will not be taken away from her. That's, that's the meaning of that. The Martha and Mary story is not, isn't it good that we have women that love to study the Bible and go to BSF? That's, that's good. But that story is shocking. Jesus is claiming her as one of his rabbinic students. She sat at his feet just like Paul said at the feet of Gamaliel. So we've got to be open to these women of strong character in terms of them. Uh, there's, a, there's a lady that Patty knows at Westover Hills in Austin, and her name is Betty Sanders. And she's in her 90s. She's never quit growing, never quit expanding her view of what God was calling her to do. She's one of my heroes. She's why I went to Westover. Okay. Not Phil. Yeah. 
And she ended up living across the street from me. She knew way too much about me. <laughs> so uh, her husband saved us one night from a guy that was going to kill us in the middle of the night. But that's another story for another time. Okay, uh, we're out of time, so I'm going to just mention these in passing. But Elizabeth uh, is the one God chooses to prophesy to Mary. And then there's Anna. And uh, she's this great testifier to the work of God. This is a story I want to encourage you to read. It's not very long. But this is in the time of Josiah. You remember who the key prophets in the time of Josiah were? Jeremiah and Zephaniah. And they were studs. But Josiah wanted to know when he finds probably a scroll of Deuteronomy in the temple, if God is going to punish them for all this sin if they don't correct it. And he goes, I need somebody. I need a prophet I can trust. And so they go to the new quarter of Jerusalem. If you're in D.C., that means you got out of the beltway. You know, you got out of that little insulated place where everybody gets to live by different laws than the rest of us and went to the new quarter and they went to Huldah and he sent his top six, he sent his cabinet to Huldah because he needed to know what the word of God was. Yep. And so uh, uh, Huldah says, this is, this is the word of the, law, the Lord and speaks the very word of the Lord. Even in the darkest of times when politics and religion are corrupt and before Josiah, it was as bad as it could be. Uh, God's going to raise up faithful voices and wise leaders need to know whom to trust when they need the truth. And what's so amazing about all that, I just got to say this, is that no, the story is told again in Second Chronicles. Right. Okay. And if, if all we had of the history of Israel was the histories, kings and chronicles, right. we'd never have heard of Amos and Hosea right. and we would have a verse on Isaiah. Right. Jeremiah sang a lamentation. That, that's it, you know. But there's two almost full chapters on this woman. And she is like the ultimate prophet in the Hebrew Bible. Right. The language and that's so, used to describe her yeah, is that. When Jesus went to the temple, there's two gates named for her. So we don't know any of that. It's like... Okay, so when Jesus goes to the temple, there's the Holda Gate, and there's the Holda Gate, and it's like, ah, there's not an Isaiah Gate. There's a Holda Gate. <laughs> and be- before he's, he's known, two prophetic women proclaim yep. him before anyone else does. So, anyway, uh, the last one is Esther, and I saved her for last because chronologically, and everybody knows her story. But if you really look in, in Mary Magdalene, I think she fulfills a very similar role. Mary Magdalene was not a whore or a prostitute. The Bible doesn't say that. She had seven demons that were cast out of her. Uh, she was part of the women that financially supported Jesus, so she had money. Uh, and, and that that support went all throughout his ministry, and uh, she is gut-level courageous. And that's what you see in the passion stories. And uh, so to me, she picks up this theme of Esther 
we got to have people for such a time as this. So, I appreciate your attention. I know it's a boatload of material. Uh, I got to give my credits. And then here's the final page. And uh, I'll go back to page one if you want to have the, the, uh, the link to the bit.ly. And then you can have that and do with it whatever you want. And use it however you want. But please, my prayer is... When you go back to your people, invite them to study some of these Old Testament people and help them understand God's the same God. And he's always had a hard time finding people that will reflect his loving faithfulness, his righteous character, and his gracious compassion. And Father, we pray we can be some of those people. God bless. Enjoy lunch.